we're going to be several different places. Uh, I want you to turn it first to Genesis chapter 3, but we continue this morning our study, Tell Me More. And this is uh, one of the sermon series that I'm probably as excited about as any that we've ever done here at First Christian Church. And here's why it's not just an FCC thing. We were a part of a group of about 20 churches stretching from Decatur to Bloomington Normal, and we have written these messages together. We've put together small group curriculum and Sunday school class curriculum together, and we are journeying through this together. Now, here's the catch. It's not just a bunch of Christian churches. There's a Baptist church and a Lutheran church and a Methodist church and an Assembly of God church, and if there's one knock on the church that I think is actually legitimate is too often we can't get along with one another. How can we ever make a difference in the world? I hear that all the time from people that are not of the faith. And I think that's legit sometimes. This is one example where a variety of churches from a variety of backgrounds are coming together, studying the same thing, teaching the same thing, trying to learn the same things together. We started last week by tackling one of those really tough questions in life, what happens when I die. No one wants to talk about their death. No one wants to travel down that road. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, although I would remind you that our sermons are available online Monday morning every week. So if you miss a message and you want to check it out, you can go and you can listen to the audio. Check it out at clintonfcc.com. But two takeaways I want to just remind you of, or if you weren't here last week, tell you about what do we do with that question? The first thing that I think we need to do is we need to put our house in order. What do I mean by that? Well, if we are estranged from people relationally, we need to reconcile. If there's conversations we need to have, we need to have them. We need to think about maybe a funeral file where we can help our, our family and our friends and our loved ones who are going to be here when we're gone. What do we want to happen? Have those communications. Put your house in order. The most important challenge from last week is to put your spiritual house in order. And we're going to tackle that at the end of the message here today. So if you're here for whatever reason and you would not describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, I want to just ask you to give me the next 25 minutes and to really have rolling through your mind kind of that question, why, why am I not? Why am I not a follower of Jesus? And is that something I need to consider. Now, most of us who are here today, we probably are followers of Jesus. That's the case with this church. That's the case with most churches. And so the challenge for you, if you are a follower of Jesus, we said last week, let's pray for one. Let's think about one person that God's brought into our world that, that is not where we are spiritually. They're not in a saving relationship with Jesus. And, and to begin praying for them, to begin looking for opportunities to have conversations. To begin look for the chance to be salt and to be light. Last week, what happens when I die? This week is a question that probably all of us have thought about this year. Why is there evil in the world? Car goes crashing into a crowd of people, and that, that's, that's evil. And we find ourselves saying, why? Seemingly good people do terrible things. Why does that happen? Well, just like last week, we've got some man-on-the-street interviews. We asked people at the Decatur Celebration, what's their answer to the question, why do people do bad things? Check this out. 
you know, I don't know why people do bad things. Sometimes it's because they're not raised right. Sometimes they feel like uh, something in life did them dirty and they need to get revenge. But there's also a lot of good in this world too. So who really knows? That's how they all raised, that they see other people doing it. They follow the wrong crowd, you know, follow the right crowd. They don't understand the right crowd, yeah. Uh, I just think that they're just born like that. They're raised in a community where they just thought it was normal, I guess. So they just keep going because that's how they were raised. The sinful nature, it's the fall. It's how it happens. Free will. The devil works on them, they get a bad idea in their mind, and they go through with it instead of doing what with Jesus. Because nobody's perfect, and people just do stuff, make bad choices. Human nature. Why do people do bad things? And let's be honest, um, people do bad things. It's really nothing new. If you were to read through the pages of Scripture, 66 books in the Bible, you'd see evil being played out. If you were just to consider, you know, what's happened in the last hundred years? Has there been evil in our world? Well, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned the name Adolf Hitler, and I don't know anybody that would say it was anything short of evil. In, in our world today, just mentioning North Korea, just mentioning ISIS, just mentioning chemical weapons, is evil. And if you wanted to, you could say, well, that's overseas, that's not in the land of the free, that's not in the land of Lincoln, but you know, what about all the things that have unfolded in our state, close to our community, bank robberies, murders, child abuse, child pornography? Our church was broken into this year. Someone broke into our church this year. Why would that happen? Maybe the greatest example of evil playing out and many of us read about it in the paper, it's kind of ongoing as a seemingly innocent, wonderful, visiting professor from China. Didn't last a week in America. Someone kidnapped her. Seemingly murdered her. Why? It's evil. And so before we become too high and mighty, I have a tendency as a person that's been around Jesus for a long time to find myself becoming very high and mighty. I have to humble myself. I have to take a step back. And before I start pointing at those kind of people, I have to realize that I've got the same problem they have. You have the same problem they have. Maybe not to the level. It really is ultimately a sin problem. It's a sin issue. Evil is out of control in the world, but if we're being honest with each other today, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark, and my guess is everybody that's here today, there's something in your past that you really hope stays in your past. You would not want to grab the microphone on Sunday morning and have confession time. We're all sinners. We've all missed the mark. We've all done bad things. So, a couple things I want to do today. Why do people do bad things? We're going to tackle that. Um, what's God's word say about that? And what do we do with that? Is there any hope at all 
And so first of all, why is there sin? Why do we sin? Why do you sin? Why do I sin? Why do people do bad things? Well, the first reason is kind of obvious. Because for a season, sin is really fun. It really is. I've never met somebody that said, I didn't want to go down that road. It was awful. It was painful. It was terrible. I just did it anyway. Sin is fun for a season. Evil can be fun for a season. I think sometimes people do bad things because of pressure from others. Now, the young'uns that are here with us today, what, what do we tell the young'uns? We tell them, don't give in to peer pressure. Stand strong. Nancy Reagan, what did she say? Just say no. For the young'uns that are here today, she used to be the first lady like 30 years ago. Um, you don't remember her. But here's the thing. Pressure, peer pressure is not just a thing for young people. I know adults. I've been an adult that has given in to peer pressure, that has struggled with peer pressure. And sometimes pressure from others leads us to doing bad things. I think a third reason is because culture absolutely promotes it. Culture absolutely teaches it. See, here's the thing. Let's say you make a commitment. You're a parent, you've got kids at home, and you really want them to not be overly influenced by messages that culture might be sending compared to what you believe the truth of God's Word is. And so you say, we're going to be at church every Sunday, 8.15 every Sunday, 10.45 every Sunday for that one hour. You're, you're in the service. If that's the only influence that's happening and there's 10 hours a day where culture is influencing with contradictory messages, what's going to connect? What's going to influence? And so I think we have to acknowledge culture promotes, culture teaches bad behavior, sadly. As a lifelong follower of Jesus, I would say that another reason people travel into bad choices and do bad things is because of spiritual complacency. Spiritual complacency. They've lost that fire. It'd be really easy, and some of you are here today, you've been around the church most of your life, maybe your whole life. There are people here today that have heard a thousand sermons. There are people here today that have been a part of a thousand Bible studies. And the temptation sometimes is to say, I've heard it all. I've studied it all. I've tackled it all. And if you find yourself slipping into that trap, you're battling spiritual complacency. Don't forget, spiritual complacency brought down Israel's greatest hero of them all, King David. Now, we think it was Bathsheba. We think it was the whole deal that he saw her bathing, and one thing led to another, and then adultery and deception and murder. But it was spiritual complacency that brought him down. And it can get the best of us as well. And then finally, maybe the best answer of all, why do people do bad things? Simply our own selfishness. Our own selfishness. Too many times we think it's all about me. And what do I want? This summer when we were going through the spiritual formation series, I reminded you that if you have a theology that says God's ultimate desire for your life is your happiness, that could lead to terrible consequences. 
Does God want us to be miserable? Well, of course not. But more than anything, I think God's greatest desire for every person gathered here today isn't your happiness, it's your holiness. And so where did this begin? Where did this sin problem begin? Well, it literally began in the beginning. And so if you have your Bible, you might want to thumb real quickly through Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And I'll just give you kind of the spoiler alert here. God created the heavens and the earth, and you've got these different days of creation. And was it 6, 24 hours? I I don't know. We've got the picture of creation. Is it a day seems like a thousand years and a thousand years seems like a day? I don't know. But we are told in Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth. And then he created Adam. And then he said, we're going to have this really cool garden. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be utopia. And he said, Adam, you're in charge. You're large and you're in charge. And you can go anywhere you want to. And you can eat anything you want to. But just stay away from the tree in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat from that, my man, you're going to die. Now, if I'm Adam, I'm like, great. I got all these other trees. I got this whole, you know, place that I can go around. But sure enough, Genesis chapter 3, Adam, Eve, the serpent, and a piece of fruit changed everything. The serpent said, you're not really going to die. He's hiding something from you. Go ahead. Try it a little bit. Just take a bite. And they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they found themselves no longer in utopia, but instead experiencing separation and heartbreak. And we have been struggling with this sin thing ever since. And so I now I sound a little bit like one of those old school preachers, like from 50 years ago, pounding the pulpit and saying it's a sin thing. But guess what? It's... A sin thing. That's where it all began. James, I think the book of James is the toughest book in the Bible for me. Not tough because it's hard to understand. No, it's really easy to understand. Tough because it's in my face, quite honestly. And if you spend time in the book of James, it's probably going to be in your face from time to time. And one of the things that James does for us is he, he shows us what this downward spiral of sin actually looks like. Let me read for you three verses in James chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. Here's here's what James writes. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, by her own evil desire, they're dragged away and they're enticed. And then after sin has conceived, it gives birth to, when When birth is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And what you have there is the downward spiral of sin. From temptation to enticement to conception, sin's full blown, and it leads to a spiritual death. And so this is an old illustration. Many of you may have heard it before, but if we decided we wanted to do a little experiment today and we went to the kitchen and Karen Rice gives, gets a big old pot of boiling water on the stove and we grab a frog and we throw that, that, that frog in that boiling pot of water, that frog's going to jump right out. But if it's kind of room temperature water and we put that frog in there, 
there's a really good chance that frog's going to hang around. And you can slowly increase the temperature until that frog boils to death. And, and that's how the downward spiral of sin plays out in our life. See, if I had a sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center and said, how many of us want today to, to travel into moral failure? Let's do it together. It'll be a lot of fun. Our lives will be destroyed. Let's go. No one's signing up for that. Moral failure is a huge problem in our world today, even for followers of Jesus. If I said, how about a life of addiction? Let, let's travel down that road and let's battle addiction together for the rest of our lives. No one's signing up for that. But addiction's a big thing, even for followers of Jesus. And it starts just kind of with temptation. Hey, it's really not that bad. It surely won't lead to death. It's no big deal. Every, everyone's doing it. You're taking this faith thing too seriously. And before you know it, you're on the downward spiral of sin. Listen to these words from Scripture. I don't do the things that I want to do. The things I hate, I do. What a wretched man I am. Who was that? That's the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever known. I mean, one of the greatest heroes of the faith. Took the gospel literally all over the world. And he writes to Christians in Rome that he's a wretched man? What's that say for you and me? If Paul's a wretched man, let me tell you, I'm a couple notches beyond that. But that's the agony of sin. That's the pain of sin. That's the Genesis 3 thing from utopia to heartbreak playing out when it's out of control, when it gets the best of us. So you're sitting here today and you're saying, this has been an uplifting message. This has been really encouraging. I'm glad I came to church today, right? Is there any hope? Well, the answer is absolutely yes, there's hope. And there's hope in one word. One word, and that word is Jesus. Absolutely, there is hope. Is sin a big deal? You better believe it. Do people do bad things? You better believe it. Have you probably found yourself falling into that category from time to time? You better believe it. Jesus has the answer. Jesus is the answer. We didn't have the whole chapter thing when the book of Romans was written. We came along and we put the chapters into place. So literally, almost right after Paul said, what a wretched man I am, this is the next thing that he wrote. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to say that with me. Let's say it together. There is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to say it like you're not at church, but you're at a ball game and you really mean it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sin's a big deal. Absolutely, yes. 
Jesus has the answer. Jesus is the answer. There is absolutely hope in Jesus. And as I bring this message to a conclusion, I want to give you three reasons that you can take to the bank while there is hope in Jesus. Number one, there's hope in Jesus legally. Jesus has already paid the price for our sin. You read through the 39 books we call the Old Testament, some people call it the Hebrew Scriptures, and you'll see sin's a big deal and sin had to be atoned for, and Jesus becomes the one time for all time sacrifice for my sins and for your sins. That's called grace. That's awesome. That's worthy of celebration. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 said it like this, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You're a sinner, you've missed the mark. I'm a sinner, I've missed the mark, but Jesus became sin for you and for me. Sometimes in church we sing about how the wrath of God must be satisfied. And sometimes you sit back and you think, do I like singing that? Is that right? And here's the point. The wrath of God was satisfied when Jesus went to the cross and died a criminal's death for you and for me. Jesus became sin for you. Even better than that is Paul's teaching to the church at Colossae in chapter 2 when he said this, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, not some of our sins, not most of our sins, not everything but the really bad sins. Paul says he forgave us all of our sins, canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. I love this. I love this. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And so it's a thing in some churches today that a cross isn't visitor-friendly. That a cross can be unhealthy. Let me just tell you, I don't ever tire of seeing that cross. I don't ever tire of walking out in our foyer and seeing the cross that Milt Trumbull built for us a couple years ago. Every time I see that cross, I'm reminded I'm an instrument of grace. And you're an instrument of grace. And we're sinners, and we deserve death, and Jesus died for us anyway. He paid the price. That, that, I mean, I could just pray right now, we go eat lunch. That's good enough right there. That's awesome. There is hope in Jesus because Jesus paid the price. God canceled the written goat. But there's more to the message, so I don't stop. I keep going with number two. Is there any hope? Absolutely, there's hope in Jesus practically. There's hope in Jesus practically. Jesus gave us two incredible weapons, his word and the power of prayer. The first verse I memorized as a little kid at First Christian Church in Champaign was John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Number two has helped me almost all of my life. It's Psalm 119.11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, there's no merit badges in the Christian faith. At least there really shouldn't be. 
And we've talked a lot this year about be in the Word. Every week you open your bulletin, we've got the daily Bible reading. We've had Bible memory classes. I have you recite scriptures along those lines. And please, please, please understand, my goal for you is that you will hide God's Word in your heart, but not so you can go to Rotary or to the Cub Scouts or to work or to the locker room and say, I've memorized 50 verses of scripture. I've got the Bible memory merit badge. That's not what it's all about. It's not a cognitive exercise. I've hidden your word in my heart, so I won't sin against you. So I'll understand how you want me to live your life. So so I'm in tune with what you're calling me to be and what you're calling me to do. And Jesus has set the standard for us. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, we say that we see the same thing. It's Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness. Three powerful temptations. The temptation of the physical nature didn't eat for a long old time, 40 days. The temptation for popularity, the temptation for power. And Jesus repels those temptations with the same weapon. He'd memorized big chunks, maybe all of God's word up to that point in time. He's in the book of Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And the more you know God's word, the more you've hidden it in your heart, the more empowered you're going to be to understand sin when it comes your way and to overcome it. Um, Prayer of Jabez, don't know where you're at on that. Doesn't really matter necessarily. If you've never heard of it, don't worry about it. If you pray it every day, two thumbs up to you. But the best part of the prayer of Jabez from 1 Chronicles 4 is the last part of it. This guy Jabez that we don't really know anything about, he asked for a larger territory. He asked for an expanded influence. But the last thing that he said that he prayed was, God, keep me from evil. I need to pray that prayer every day. God, today, keep me from evil. God, keep me from temptation. God, keep my heart pure. I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to spend time with a recovering heroin addict and just try to get inside her mind, try to get inside where she's at. And a lot of victories, a couple setbacks along the way, but the one thing that just struck me, she said, every day I have to wake up and look myself in the mirror and say, you're not doing heroin today. Every day I have to wake up and do that. And I don't care if your addiction is some sort of a substance or maybe it's pornography, or maybe it's gambling. Anyone that's an addict, when they start convincing themselves they've won the battle, or when they start convincing themselves it's no big deal, they're on their way to the slippery slope of failure. And so guess what? All of you here today, you're an addict. I'm an addict. We're sin addicts. Sin is enticing. Sin is enjoyable. And so every day I got to wake up and say, not today, big boy. It's not happening today. Jesus told us to pray it in the Lord's Prayer, right smack dab in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. Lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. And oh, by the way, one final spiritual encouragement along the way. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul reminds us that there's no temptation that you will face that you can't overcome. No temptation that you face 
except what's common to man. That means you can't say to someone in your life, you just don't get the temptation that I'm facing. I never had a chance. Paul would say every temptation is winnable. Every challenge you can overcome. So we got hope in Jesus legally. He's already paid the price. We've got hope in Jesus practically, the power of his word, the power of prayer. Hope in Jesus, number three, relationally, you are not alone. I am not alone. We don't have to be the Lone Ranger, and we shouldn't be the Lone Ranger. And if there's a a tag phrase that I want to leave with you, it's kind of a fill in the blank on your handout if you're taking notes. It's this, just like Jesus. That's what needs to roll through your mind. Try to be just like Jesus. Now, he was perfect. He was God's son. He was fully God, fully man. You're not going to get there. But that's a great goal. If you're a bowler, you know, and I'm not a bowler, but if you're a bowler, you probably have the goal of bowling what? A 300, right? No one shows up and says, I hope I can at least get a 150. You know, unless you get the bumpers and, you know, you're just not very good at it. But you shoot for the very best. And then you get the 285 and you're like celebrating. Or if you're me, you get a 185 and you're celebrating. Just like Jesus. How do we be just like Jesus? I like what Paul teaches the church at Philippi in Philippians 2. Here's what he says. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And as someone that battles pride, let me tell you, the key words in white there, I can't be reminded of enough. I need to swallow my pride and embrace humility. I need to say every day, I want to look more like Jesus. And in John 13, Jesus shares his heart with his disciples. He says, I'm giving you a new commandment. And here it is, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Remember those days of church camp? Some of you are still going to church camp as adolescents. And you're sitting around the campfire, and we sing that song that they'll know we're Christians by our knowledge. They'll know we're Christians by our debate skills. They'll know that we're Christians by our church attendance although you should come to church. They'll know we're Christians by our love. And so when I love like Jesus, and my attitude's like Jesus, and I wake up every day and I say, God, help me today to be more like Jesus, I'm already winning the war that's being waged in my soul. And so... Too many people try to do this all by themselves. Too many people try to do that Lone Ranger solo kind of faith. And so I want to tell you, everybody here today, you need accountability in your life. You absolutely need to not go through faith all by yourself. And so I'm calling this a band of brothers, sisterhood of the saved. I realize that's really cheesy. I realize that's something like from the 1970s. But I wanted to come up with something that you would remember that you'd grab a hold of and you'd be reminded you can't do faith alone, you shouldn't try to do faith alone, and that there truly is strength in numbers. Spiritually speaking, do you have people in your life that have permission to tell you anything? If you don't, 
you need it. I need people in my life that say, pride's getting the best of you. I need people in my life to say, you know, what, what are you doing with your time management? What are you doing with the choices that you're making? Are you being wise? I need that. You need that. And Ecclesiastes 4 gives us a great picture of why we need that. Here's what Ecclesiastes 4.12 says. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Power in numbers. Don't be the Lone Ranger. And so the bottom line for you this morning is this. Sin really is a big deal. Evil really is a thing. And yeah, North Korea makes me want to punch something. Absolutely. But guess what? When I look in the mirror sometimes and I consider my life, it makes me want to punch myself. It reminds me that just like Paul, I'm wretched without Jesus. And so sin's a big deal, but Jesus has the answer. Jesus is the answer. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the hope that we have because of Jesus. And God, it's my prayer that as we move through the end of this service, just that you will um, you'll work in our hearts. You'll make us uncomfortable. You'll challenge us be beyond the status quo and just doing life and that we'll never buy the lie that sin's no big deal and we'll never buy the lie that Jesus is no big deal thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus it's in his name that we pray amen and so every week as we move toward the end of our service we're going to sing a couple songs we're going to do communion and offering um we offer you options if you want options. And we're going to have an elder that's in the fireside room in our foyer. If you want someone in just kind of a quiet, intimate setting that can minister to you, pray with you, shepherd you, check that out. I'm up front. I'd love to have the chance to pray with you. And we do that every week. And at the end of the service, I'm up front. And I'd love to pray with you as well. The most important thing that I really want to drive home this morning, though, is this idea that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is hope. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I would love to talk with you about what that means, how we're called to be Christ followers, to believe and repent and confess and to be baptized and to live for Jesus Christ. Most of us, as I said earlier, that are here today are Christ followers. And so my challenge for you, if you are a follower of Jesus through the remainder of this service, is to pray for your one Who's the one that God's brought into your world that doesn't know Jesus? And what can you do about that? Let's stand and Samuel and our team will lead us.
fix this on my own Cause my heart is frozen to wander far As you call me back to your arms Cause I fall at your feet again Here's my heart again, but I am yours Surrender all. 